0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, host of the Venture Fizz Podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 96th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Rudina Sacheri, founder and managing partner of Glasswing Ventures. Glasswing is an early-stage venture capital firm dedicated to investing in the next generation of AI-powered technology companies. The firm announced its $112 million debut fund last July, and Rudina has invested in companies like Chaos Search, Interrupt, Tala, Xylotech, and others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Rudina's inspirational background story and how at the age of 15, she came to the US by herself for school and what that taught her about independence, her professional experience and how she got into the world of venture capital, the story of how Glasswing got started and all the details on the firm, the current state of AI and other sectors, common mistakes entrepreneurs make, advice for founders on trying to get early customers, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. On the first Monday of every month, we publish the latest edition of Career Forward. It is a roll-up of the hottest jobs in the Boston tech scene, and this month's edition features over 120 jobs across all functional areas such as engineering, product, user experience, sales, marketing, and more. Go to venturefiz.com backslash careerforward, all one word, for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rudina. Rudina, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Keith. Always happy to talk to you.
0: Yeah, it's good to catch up. So, you know, (laughs) I I thought we'd just dive right in here. So why don't we take a journey back. Let's talk about your background. So like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, So I grew up in Albania um, until the age of 15. And then I came to the States for school. Um, So what was I as a kid? Actually, not not a big troublemaker at all. Um, And my mother tells me, but quite curious and, um, and not afraid to take risks. I think that's probably evident from the fact that the first opportunity I had, um, with my mother's encouragement in particular, my father had passed away when I was quite young. Um, I jumped in and took the opportunity to come and study in the U.S. and all by myself. So, and could all have by gone yourself? Off, all by myself. So, At, could have at gone, the age of 15? At the age of 15, wow. I was placed with a family, yeah. So could have gone wrong in many, many <laughs> directions and at many points in that journey. But I'm um, very fortunate to have always had both my family support, even from far away, but also people in my life who became mentors and supporters. So I think I've ended in an okay spot.
0: And how was that at first? Like when you're 15 coming to the United States to, to study, like what was that like?
1: You know, what's interesting when it is occurring, uh, you know, I mean, you have a culture shock and, um, I was, um, I went to a school in the South, which was culture shock within culture shock, um, very, quite different from my upbringing, but while you're in the tunnel, you don't quite appreciate all the change that you're facing, especially at that age. Um, as I look back, my goodness, you know, it was quite, quite a quite a change and quite a shock to the system. I think um, I would say I was dealing with um, you know the cultural differences and um, you know getting my head around those, but also this notion that I viewed coming to the U.S. at the time as the opportunity to get ahead to learn, to advance, whether it was in my life, I don't think at the time I was thinking in terms of career, but life in general, and that I had made a huge sacrifice to leave my family, and solo had my family, I mean, I'm a mother now, I cannot imagine my daughter not being with me at the age of 15, so uh, as I look back, it was as hard, I think, for my my mom and my sister as it was for me. But what that does, it it creates zero room for mistakes. And what I mean by that is, um, if the average teenager was taking this and that risk, my, you know, even for fun, even as they're getting to know oneself, my my risk was coming to the U.S. And so I was quite focused. We'd call it execution, I think, in business, but quite focused on my academics and extracurriculars and just making sure that um, sort of, I adopted this mentality of zero room for failure, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, that's such a that's such an interesting like foundational story about you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it helped shape who I've become, I think, over time.
0: Absolutely, very uh, like determined. You had to build independence right away. Like that's definitely a shaping part of a personality.
1: And you grow up overnight that's the other realization i had all of a sudden you're responsible for everything you do you're on your own you're navigating you're navigating culture you're navigating a new school system a new language so um so yeah i think um and i think it must become foundational but i don't think it's a very uncommon story you know for a lot of immigrants um that come into this country um, especially as you go through it. In my case, legal immigration, you know, education, and then employment. But here we are. I think um, hopefully paying it multiple folds over with you know running a VC firm and creating all sorts of employment opportunities.
0: So why did you decide to attend Wellesley?
1: So um, I was applying to a number of schools, and um, at the time, one of my sort of mentors, um, who is still one of my closest friends, and actually. An advisor as well to myself and to the firm Stephen Martiros Um, he had gone to Babson undergrad and grad and said every smart woman he had ever dated um, had attended Wellesley so I had to check the school out and it was very much a meant-to-be story because it was right around the Christmas holiday and most deadlines for the schools I'd applied had passed Um, so I was like okay I will visit the school I know you know lots of um, famous and sort of women who have broken through glass ceilings have gone there but um, I think I've missed the boat but nonetheless we went in I took the before I took the tour we asked if there was an opening for an interview they said no took the tour someone had canceled two hours later a spot had opened up so everything lined up and I have to say Wellesley um, and what it has done for me was as influential in shaping who I've become as any other event in my life. This notion that the sky's the limit in what you can achieve and um, a pure sort of enriching experience of life and academics in a beautiful combination.
0: And what did you do after school?
1: So I went into... um, I went to do investment banking um, and worked at at the time it was Credit Suisse first Boston. and now it's Credit Suisse in the tech group. Remember, I graduated in 2000 from um, from my undergraduate program from Wellesley. So um, it was one of the tech hypes at the time and booms. So I was um, at CS through the boom and the bust. Um, so two years as an analyst and then a third year as a senior analyst before going to business school. And that was a whole different learning experience because I was working in um, a group that was run by Frank Quatrone at the time, who was both a very famous banker and then um, the attorney general of New York um, went after him. So there were, you know, during the bus, there was the legal process, there was the um, layoffs that took place. So... Um, I survived them all, but um, lots of learning there as well. It was also lots of learning in the transactional side of things. And most importantly, it's really where I caught the tech bug, as I say. (laughs)
0: Actually, a lot of late nights too.
1: No, yeah. Well, I, uh, my my husband, who at the time was my boyfriend, kept saying, "You know, Rodina has two sets or, or two major forces in her life: myself and her BlackBerry at the time." <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> the BlackBerry was not very, you know, was not atypical.
0: Yeah, no, Epidemic. very common then. Yep. Yeah. So, so why did you decide to go to uh, business school at HBS?
1: Um, I think in large part because um, I just come out sort of it was 2003 and the intensity of investment banking combined with having again Spitzer at the time having gone through that legal process and having been called in because I was one of the very few um, analysts who had survived the layoffs and just the intensity of what had gone on on Wall Street, I, I wanted to figure out what was out there and broaden my career. And business school is always a good stepping stone for that. So um, I, was, I was fortunate to attend HBS and it became quite an, the right platform, again, as I look back, both in terms of advancing how one approaches problems with general management, but also in the relationships and the friendships that I formed while there. And the, the, you know pertain and remain true today
0: and then after b-school so you you got into the world of venture capital how did that happen
1: i actually first went to work for microsoft so um <clears throat> and the reason i i went into sort of an operational role was because while at HBS, I had met Rick Grinnell, my, my partner and co-founder at Blastwing, And he was a, um, I believe, either associate or senior associate at the time, an in venture and had done a project with him um, on wireless um, infrastructure. So it's early 2000s. And um, Rick had said, look, you know, a lot of um, founders will relate better to VCs who, you know, have operational experience of some sort, either as a co-founder or who go work for a tech company. And I took that to heart. So um, I moved to Seattle and joined Microsoft and um, in part was doing um, the acquisition side of things, which I had experience from banking and then extending into venture or in the investing side.
0: So it was a logical transition. So you were kind of doing, so you were part of the MA group at?
1: Yeah, Corp Dev Group. Uh-huh.
0: Yep. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And then
0: eventually made that transition into the world of venture capital.
1: Correct. Um, you know, going back to Rick, uh, you know, true friendships and partnerships persist over time. Um, in, in the old firm, as a new fund was being raised, it said, you know, hey, we talked about getting together and back in, you know, or in the future, but you've been there right under two years it's now or never Do you want to come and join us so i jumped and joined our old firm and was there for nine years before he and i started glasswing
0: so uh so glasswing so talk about what you guys like why did you decide to start glasswing and uh you know what you guys are doing
1: So the genesis of Glasswing actually dates back to sort of um, the late 14, 2015 time frame. Um, Rick and I focused on enterprise and cybersecurity investments. I'm more enterprise, Rick more cybersecurity. And we were noticing that something was happening on the on the tech side where we had moved beyond the analytics it was something else and largely driven by what was coming out of academia and early adoption of you know on deep learning but also if you will the propensity was it was um enhanced um from the multitude of data, not just the quantity, the sheer quantity from the connectivity that comes through our devices and beyond, but also the veracity and diversity of data. So we actually did a deep dive into, um, you know, what was happening, and I think it was a year-long thesis around the market and basically concluded that uh, there was a, what we call a narrow AI paradigm that was coming about. So, um, and uh, think of AI as the what, the intelligence bit, and the um, mach- and machine learning as the how. Um, and, you know, and there are various types of uh, machine learning um but you know, deep learning being really the impetus. So with that in mind, we thought that the opportunity was so big that um, it warranted its own fund um, because it cut across every facet of enterprise service security and honestly consumer as well as you've noticed, as we've all seen with the big players and emerging players but given our domain um, expertise and experience, we are really focused on the enterprise platforms and cybersecurity markets.
0: How'd you come up with the name? I'm always fascinated to hear how people come up
1: with so, their name. Um, no, it's a twofold story. Um, Glasswing is a species of a butterfly, and um, it um, it's a transparent butterfly. So the idea of transparency, it's also a the idea of transformation at the core. So our mantra at Glasswing is, you know, Glasswing Ventures, where ideas take flight. Mm -hmm. So the notion that you know, much like um, butterfly starts as a a caterpillar cocoon and then butterfly, a lot of businesses are founded. It's an idea, then it's a startup, then it's a market making leader. So the analogy then of the notion of transformation around innovation. And then lastly, it's from a mechanical construct point of view, you can actually see the structure because it's transparent. It's actually quite durable. So the notion of building a long lasting firm. It's also the case at a personal level that, you know, my daughter at the time was two years old, three years old. So the reading of the Very Hungry Caterpillar was her constant presence, and <laughs> so it kept, it kept that, you know those juices going. But, but that's where Glasswing came about, and and I think it's also a deeper sort of relationship with founders because, in addition to being experienced venture investors. We founded our own firm on top of whatever operational experience we had. And it's not just Rick and I, we brought in um, Sarah Fay very shortly after founding our firm, who's a three-time CEO. So deep operational bench. But, you know, by founding our own firm, um, we went through that and have been going through the founder journey experience ourselves. So I think um, we can relate it quite deeply with founders and entrepreneurs at this point.
0: What's well, cool to hear that there was a lot of thought that went into the name, and it actually has a lot of meaning versus Newberry Street Venture Partners. <laughs>
1: yeah. so I think it was, it, and it was, and we truly took some time because how often do you get to have, as I say, a white piece of paper and start, you know, um, setting the path to build something? I think um, the, I hope it resonates with others as well that we've been quite thoughtful in the way we've approached, not just you know, the glass swing name, but also the depth of the, pla- and the breadth of the platform.
0: where's your firm, like, make investments? Like, where's your target area of focus?
1: Yeah. So, um, basically, as I said, we focus broadly on the enterprise and cybersecurity markets, uh, but particularly taking advantage of AI and frontier tech. So, um, if you think about it, it's um, really targeting sort of the intelligent enterprise or the in- enterprise of tomorrow, what that means for AI to become a reality is that we look at opportunities, whether it is in vertical markets, um, in the intelligent from the cloud to all the way to the intelligent to the app layer, the opportunities, Um, all along the stack, but also on the data side. Um, Right now, we're at a phase where enabling, freeing up data and enabling uh, the data infrastructure. And in this context, the word infrastructure doesn't necessarily mean hardware, but just the backbone of data to be able to be responsibly and privacy minded, but be able to be freed up so that we can use it so that we can enable a cadre of new startups to, um, to take advantage because you need machine learning and you need the data, the fuel to be able to drive, um, you know, intelligence, whether it is in predictives, whether it is in some other facets, um, whether it's, you know, voice or speech or, um, NL, you know, NLU and on, on the um, understanding and processing side or, um, you know, haptics, whatever facet of intelligence we're looking at.
0: And is it like a first money in, like what stage of investment? Very good question.
1: So um, we tend to be, so the main fund, or there's one fund, but 95% of the fund is focused in the seed stage, which is interesting because nomenclature has changed over time. You know, I would say five years ago, that was the A. So it's that first, you know, two to $5 million check where we're typically writing, um, half the round unless it's on the smaller side and we love and you know colleagues have called it, I think pretty much all our investments except one that we incubated um, with Tim Berners-Lee and um, John Bruce but um, so it's at that stage which today we've call, we call the seed and then we also about 5% of the fund goes into the pre-seed opportunities which we used to call the seed in the market but it's at first 100 to 500k check and the reason for doing so is because, you know, we see founders who we've worked with in the past or have tracked for some times, and it's really an early bet on them and the market they're pursuing and very, very few proof points.
0: Can you share some uh, recent investment portfolio examples?
1: Absolutely. So um, on the enterprise side, let's see. um, uh, So one of the um, very interesting um, investments is around chaos search. So, yes, you had them on your get, program. No, That's right. Yeah, let's see Tom and
0: Les are on the podcast. <laughs> That's right.
1: I think, um, again, and I think of that place very much around the enabling the data infrastructure and freeing up data and making it much more, um, cost effective. So in layman's term, what, um, what Les and Tom are doing and the, and the collective team are doing is actually turning, um, cold storage into basically mineable and into hot storage, but mine, so the data in S3, especially for Amazon and the elastic, sort of the elk stack, um, so that the data, um, It can be visualized, can be analyzed, can be mined um, in cold storage like you would in hot storage, but for a fraction of the cost and multiple fold faster, you know, higher speed. So I I think that is a very, very big opportunity. So that's um, an investment I'm quite excited about. I think um, you probably have had TALA, um, so I think we led – um, we're one of the main investors in TALA, although TALA I feel like rallies the entire Boston community, investor community together um, because a lot of us around town have, um, have invested in the company behind Rob May. Um, another exciting investment perhaps on the um, cybersecurity side um, is Allure. I don't know if you have talked to um, those guys, but Mark Jaffe is a repeat entrepreneur for us. And that's very, they're very much in the intelligent detection of and beaconizing um, of documents. So if um, a bad actor hacks into highly sensitive documents, um what first layer of defense is they create what i would call a needle in a haystack problem so the, there are many many documents that look alike making it difficult for a hacker to identify which one is the correct one that they're after but even if they get to the right one they actually Weaponized, it would be the wrong term, but they they embed code, and that's where machine learning comes in, such that when the document travels, it actually is being tracked. So, um, you know, you, you can see where the document is going. So that is a very interesting play, um, both leveraging AI, but also cybersecurity, um, you know, for the cybersecurity market.
0: And one of the... Uh... I guess, key differentiators for Glasswing is is the, the Connect Council. So what is the Connect Council all about?
1: So um, it's broader than Connect, actually. It's the advisory council. So as okay. you think about Glasswing as a platform, um, we've announced there are about seven facets to it. So there's a less in the beginning. There is breadth and depth to Glasswing, one of the seven facets that we've already announced, the other ones we're about to um, on a rolling basis are the advisory councils. So what, what they are all about is, you know, every firm has some level of advisors and because we're all trying to provide breadth to uh, our portfolio companies, where I hope Glasswing is differentiated is not only in the caliber of advisors that we have, but also the depth of the relationship. So we have, I believe, 35 advisors who work with Glasswing exclusively on a contractual basis. So they're working with us and no other firm. So there's some, you know, there's an exclusivity component. And and to your question, they're organized around Connect. Um, So very much, uh, you know, the academic side of things, what's the next cutting edge, you know, uh, machine learning technique. What what companies are getting started out of X Y Z person's lab? So it's both deal sourcing, uh, remaining you know at the cutting edge, of the at the frontier, but also um, just as you know as we need help or as we're looking for talent, which in our area is quite scarce. Um, the the academics and the luminaries are quite helpful again, vision and concrete help. The other side of the connect council is. Um, The the business leadership working group, which is very much CXOs, from CEOs to CMOs, CDOs, CTOs, who are adopters of the technologies and and the software solutions that our portfolio companies provide. So they are both helpful during sourcing and diligence, but also as customers, provided there is no conflict. And then similarly, we have a cybersecurity council that we refer to as the Protect Council, And an entrepreneur's leading council, which is really a successful founders um, supporting our founders. So we think of this group very much as an extension to our team. They have commitments in terms of amount of time and effort that they put with us and very much give us breadth and depth as we support companies and also evaluate opportunities. And again, they're one facet, a very important facet, but one facet of the Glasswing platform.
0: Well, it's obviously an impressive collection of people that are helping, you know, with your portfolio.
1: Um,
0: So, you know, it's a, it's a who's who that I could go on and on with each name, as far as what they've accomplished uh, in their, in their career. But one in particular, you know, uh, Sir, Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the internet. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's so, uh, and, and you you invested in, in his company too, right? So what's it like working with someone like that? Like, I, I mean, he's such a, a, an amazing human being uh, and visionary. So w- what has that experience been like? And then obviously what is his latest company all about?
1: Okay. So Tim invented the World Wide Web um, when he was at the CERN going back to 1989. In fact, I think... Just a few weeks ago, um, we celebrated and he celebrated the 30th year of um, having invented the web, which was uh, quite a bit of a milestone, uh, but also, you know, this changed our lives. Um, the um, So the experience of working with Tim, I mean, it's both extremely um, intellectually stimulating, but a delight. He's, he is, um, he's a wonderful person in addition to being, you know, off the charts brilliant. So I would say... The, the feeling of being humbled in his presence never goes away. Uh, but I'm I think we I personally and we at Glasswing um, consider ourselves quite fortunate, not only to have him as an entrepreneur in our portfolio, but also truly as a friend and an advisor to the firm. Um, the experience of working with Tim actually extends a few years in that. Um, The team was working on the idea of solid, um, which is basically the notion of decentralizing the web um, such that the data ownership and um, the the application or the use of data are separated, Um, i.e. enabling consumers and enterprises to have control of their data but still be able to derive value from it versus in the current paradigm where Ownership and control of data is um, completely in the hands of the vendors and away from whether it's the consumers or the enterprises that are generating data. And um, and as we know, recent regulation in, in Europe and most recently in California as well, completely supports that vision. But Tim has had that vision for some time. And as I said, I've now been working with him Three and a half, four years, um, and on the vision of Solid, and then InRAPT, um, So Solid is think of it as the enabling platform, which is open source, and then and, and the related standards. And Inrupt is the enterprise grade um, provider of you know for Solid. Um, a relationship that's not too, too different, and it's akin to what Red Hat was and uh, is to Linux. Um so around the idea of interrupt, I'm, I'm quite um proud because we actually in helped incubate the company. So um in addition to Tim Berners Lee, John Bruce, the co founder and CEO, um is a staple for for us at uh, Glasswing because um he's a repeat entrepreneur for us that we've backed in the past, Rick and his first um you know in the in the prior investment at resilient which was very successfully acquired by um, ibm and i brought him uh, back to um, and together we he and tim um, founded the company and i helped incubate it Um, so right now the company has come out of stealth they did about six months ago and they are deep in um, honestly filtering which projects and which um, customers to take on because the, the demand is so high. So I think it's not only what Tim and John are doing is not only the right thing, but it's actually a much-needed uh, much solution for, for this new paradigm around um, data and web decentralization.
0: Very cool. Now, part of being a successful venture capitalist is having this um, you know, ability to almost you know, see the future. And um, you know, so as in the enterprise, like where is AI currently in its adoption state? Um, you know, because I'm sure some of the things, you know, enterprises just aren't ready for yet, but where but what what sectors are you seeing kind of now is the time?
1: Yeah. That's that's a very good question. Thank you for asking it. I think um I would parse the answer in a couple of sort of categories. If you wanted to approach it from an awareness point of view and almost too much noise and overheating the usage of the term, Um, I would say we're in the third or fourth inning. It's it's very overused. If um, we look at the reality of adoption, I mean, let's put it this way. Large enterprises um, all have a mandate that in the top five priorities of the enterprise, AI has to be somewhere in there. Um, but if you ask 10 enterprises what AI means and what it means in the context of their business, you will get 10 separate questions or just 10 separate and different answers, which ought to be an indicator that in reality, defining and really taking advantage of AI, we're still in the barely at the end of the first inning, maybe. Which also means that the opportunity for startups. In AI and more broadly frontier tech as well, because AI is, um, you know, crisscrossing with other technologies, whether it's blockchain, whether it is AR, VR. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of room for growth and there's a lot of room for adoption. So my answer, in my view, is that we're still in the early stages. I do think that from a startup perspective, selling into the large enterprise is that. Um, Fundamentally, and this goes to the core of our um, investment strategy, um, startups that are AI native, i.e., from, from day one, the code is, you know, taking advantage, or first of all, it's being coded and incorporating neural nets and it's being trained with data. Um, they have an advantage on the long in the long term versus your typical software. Um, because you know there's a continuous learning and improvement so there's a definite you know opportunity here that continues and a different definite different differentiation um, the challenge and why we think it's important that we actually have gone deep in, in understanding what it means to leverage machine learning what kind of techniques um, you know what dna do you need in the team etc etc is that Every company, every startup is calling itself .ai, something, something .ai, whether in reality they are or they're not. So um, noise through substance differentiation is important. And that's where I think we absolutely have an edge. But the market, the doors are wide open. And again, we're still in the early innings of adoption in the enterprise. Is,
0: is there so a, so. Um, you know, like even broader, it doesn't have to be the enterprise or security, yeah. it could be anything. Like, is there like this moonshot? Opportunity for AI that could like realistically change the world? Like, it just, yeah. Like, so so what do you think?
1: Absolutely is the answer. And I think it's in, I mean, in every facet of our lives, whatever service, uh, whatever product we're using, there is an opportunity to not only make it more intelligent, but completely alter the way we interface with it. Um, You know, we have seen that vision is where we've seen the most progress, if you will. Um, And, you know, as we go down the path of, for example, pick on um, self-driving cars, without the advent of vision um, and and intelligence around it, I think we would have a lot more limitations. So that's a whole new category that in the next five to ten years will entirely change our lives. Um, This is just some vision, natural language understanding, speech recognition. I mean, we've we've only scratched the surface. So you can go on and on on the various facets, not to mention that when it comes to data, we're only in the predictive phase. There's a lot more than actually AI and and machine learning can teach us, not just predict what will happen, but what ought to happen and how we get there Um, with an area that we have a whole thesis and point of view developed around that that is quite fascinating. So I would say from automotive to retail to um, old industries like supply chain management to um, healthcare, there are, you know, and I'm, I'm going at it now from a vertical point of view, but there are gigantic opportunities for complete disruption.
0: Absolutely. Now it's, and is it, is it now the time because access to the computing power is there and like, you know, for years, um, you know, you couldn't just, you know, Amazon Web Services, you can obviously have access to this massive computing power that if you had to build that yourself, you know, good luck with the, you know, building yeah. it and the expense.
1: Exactly. No, I mean, look, I think I often say there are three things that are, you know, three drivers that have enabled this current um, AI um, revolution, if you think it's compute power. Um, cheaper, better, faster, but all on compute power, you know, not just sort of on the cloud side, but also the ASICs and the chip side of things and how much uh, one can do today and Moore's Law still holding. It's the advances around the algorithms and neural networks. Again, with deep learning in 2006 in academia, 2010-2012 starting to see early adop- We started to see early adoption in um, in industry, and then data. It's that trifecta um, where you know cloud compute and compute power and compute power at a fraction of the historical cost is one of those three drivers. Absolutely.
0: What's the best way to get your attention if I was interested in getting an investment from my company?
1: So I would say get one of our portfolio company founders, one of our advisors to make an introduction. I think I get cold emails and um, I will look at them um, and um, not all the time, but probably about half the time I will respond to them. Half the time I want because it's somebody who has done zero diligence and they're just um they're just flooding the market. Um but I will respond to them. But the best way to come in with credibility, um I mean we're in the business of saying no, whether we as VCs admit it or not, we mm-hmm. see um so many opportunities, highly qualified opportunities any of which could make it to the top. We're just looking for the best of the best to to invest and help support the founders and help them build the company and scale the company. So it's about how do you get unfair advantage and unfair attention? It's also the case, and I've said that in the past as well, that um, if you're cold emailing me in a world of LinkedIn and all sorts of tools uh, where it's impossible not to have 30 people in common with any given person these days, um, what what are you indicating to me about your ability to find a connection and network your way into a customer mm-hmm. um, and, and a prospective buyer of your software? So there, there are subtle um, indicators that over time become, you know, one starts developing patterns about the approach. But look, I think if there is no one else, go ahead and call the email. But the best path would be find somebody who will lend you credibility not your cousin but someone who lent you credibility in the domain expertise you know with their domain expertise and you leverage that introduction
0: and once that first meeting is set up like what, what are you hoping to get out of that
1: so um once that meeting is um set up i'm hoping i'm really looking for the quality of the founders um uh, digging a bit more i think we get a real sense because we do this day in and day out in the first 15 minutes. Well, how real their AI, you know, AI is. We sometimes we'll be able to even tell from from the deck. But for sure, once we are meeting, because we can go deep. Quite fast, what technique. How are you approaching it? Who's leading it, etc. So, um, so I think. But it's the founder. Is how big of an opportunity it is. How disruptive is it? And just generally, um, does this fit with our view of the particular market or or industry? And, and if so, then we progress with a with a you know with the second and third and so on meetings. If it's not a fit, though, I, I've always made this a personal um, goal, um, and it becomes evident that it's not a fit. Um, I will never do the. I would like to see a few more quarters of traction, mm-hmm. so I will never do the VC uh, lingo for no thank you. No um, thank you, and
0: I fear are missing out too, right?
1: Yeah, um,
0: it does start to get traction, and you're like, "Oh, yeah, I saw that deal."
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think what we do is I try to find something or contribute something, and give something back. So I never want a founder to leave after having done a call or met with. Uh, me or us at Glasswing and feel like, oh my gosh, that was a waste of my time. Um, whether it is an introduction we can make, whether it is something we can provide them with, whatever facet of of help, because honestly, it's a very sort of, it's a interconnected, you know, it's an ecosystem. We're all interconnected to each other. And even if that particular opportunity is not a fit for us, um, by helping them, we're helping the broader ecosystem. And you never know. Founders are typically entrepreneurs are repeat. So if not one opportunity, the next. But I always try to do the right thing. And um, I don't sugarcoat things sometimes, especially in my gender, that gives you the reputation as being tough. And I'm okay to be tough because at least they know where they stand. They get an honest answer and they get depth.
0: Honesty is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to help perfect, hopefully the business plan or where are the pitfalls that you know your opinion is seeing so
1: or think about think about i mean again i'm a founder and i'm a co-founder myself think about how many meetings they are doing and i don't i don't want people to have false hopes right. i want them to hear the truth at least as i see it and know whether there is an opportunity or not and why there is or why there is isn't. i think i think that that level of candor should be valuable and and, and by all accounts it is
0: and, and sometimes I'm sure you know the entrepreneurs have a great idea. It's just not something that makes sense for your business model as a venture investor. The rate of return that could be on the other side.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we we get less of those. We filter we filter quite well, carefully again because we want to be mindful of the founder's time and how how tough is the business. But it could be the stage. It could be the the dynamics of the you know of the round it could be it could be a number of reasons it could be that you know the founder is there but he or she needs to be augmented by one or two co-founders i mean they come in all sorts and shapes and some knows are real no's, some no's are you no know, go hit this one or two things and then let's keep talking and let me see how i can help you get there so that we can properly evaluate this Again, but to the point of candor, when we say that, that's exactly what we mean. It's no code word for I want you to like me, but I'm saying no. I want you to like me because I'm providing substance. And then you, we will be a good partner with, for each other.
0: And you've seen countless pitches and, oh, and, yeah. and, and, and decks, right? So what are common mistakes that entrepreneurs make that you've seen time and time again? I'm like, and it would just be good for, for people to know about.
1: Um, a couple a couple come to mind, I think one being um, if you don't know the answer, say, you know what, I don't know that answer. And either come back to us when you have had a chance to think about it or acknowledge that it will take some more time to mitigate for the risk or get to that answer. I think we appreciate that. There are many answers that you don't know, especially in the early stages, whether it's around you know fully honing in on product market fit What's the right pricing? I mean, we see it. We live it every day. I respect that because, um, you know, rather than the rambling or just trying to come up with an answer right there on the spot that doesn't fully jive or you haven't thought about you know, about it previously, I, I respect someone saying, I don't know. Let me get back to you or I don't know. It will take time to get there because it, it tells me about maturity self confidence as a founder and also um, the ability to acknowledge what's reality and where you need to get it's actually an indication in many ways believe it or not in my view around execution and how one approaches execution so I think I think that's something that's um, that's that's important um, I think it's okay to to sell don't oversell because <laughs> on uh, in diligence you know things um, Things come about, so I, th- I would say this probably um, those would be the sort of two watch areas. But it's okay to sell <laughs> because mm-hmm. oftentimes founders have to sell ahead of product or a, a little bit ahead of where their company maturity is. Just don't overdo it.
0: Well, you, you know, obviously uh, you're talking about selling your company, so hopefully the, the VC firm will make an investment. But actually, along those lines, like what, what advice do you give to founders that are? Out there trying to find early adopters, like selling to your first, you know, mm-hmm. set of customers. Um, so, what advice would you give to founders on landing those, you know, early adopter types?
1: Um, I mean, it depends on the business and, and where they are, but I think I would say um, getting logos. It's more important than having the exact right um, pricing strategy, Um, although that's fundamentally important. But I think getting the wheel turning, getting those early referenceable customers is important. Um, Determining fairly quickly what are the right and the wrong customers. Not all customers are created equal. So in the same breath that I say, get those logos, get those early customers, I also say, be thoughtful about who you think will be the right customers. And if they're not, how do you focus on on getting the right ones? Because um, your product, let's say that you're a mid-market solution, but you're going after a large enterprise that has all sorts of, I don't know, security requirements and other requirements that you just cannot comply right there and then with. That could just basically take up all of your resources and, you know, for the big name that they give you, they might just just bring everything to a screeching halt. So navigating that is, is quite important. Um, and then also uh, sort of over time figure out um, what kind of approach, what kind of strategy will you pursue? Is it a freemium model? Is it a SaaS model? Is there a setup fee? Do you need to do a bit of consulting upfront and a bit of consulting at the end to get the chunk? So, and by the way, I'm focusing a lot on the go to market, but we can look at the product features. How do you drive product leadership and how do you think about those features versus balancing with what the customers need? How do you prioritize? So there are all sorts of different facets, but anyway, this will give you a flavor.
0: If you look at Glasswing, it's uh, you, Rick, and Sarah. Mm-hmm. So there's two women, one male. Like, are, are we making headway? I know we're not like making massive progress with more females, you know, yeah. in leadership roles in, in in the VC community. But are we making some headway?
1: By the way, just to give you the correct data, so it's the three um, the three of us, but we also have two venture partners. One of whom we just announced. Let's say Noah. He was um, the Former um, SVP and CTO of Nuance, is also chief scientist for Kurzweil AI, um, and we have a second, a woman um, venture partner that we've just added and will be announcing shortly. So we have really sort of five um, executives, or you know, on the investment team, and then we have you know the overall team is eight people. So we also have Andre Rosha on our. So it, it's it extends way more than just the three of us. Um, as our core team. But um, to answer your question around women, look, I think this is a journey. It's not going to change um, overnight. And it's not just about women. It's about women and minorities and more broadly diversity in, um, in venture and diversity in tech, including startups. I think I would say over the last 24 months, we have witnessed a dramatic positive shift starting with awareness and now actually making its way in firms, adding, um, partners and, um, and, but more importantly, and or equally importantly, not more importantly, um, startups actually being quite aware of their composition of the, of their teams. Um, one of my portfolio companies had an offsite, um, last week and, um, I, I, I kind of had to look up because the CEO said, "I don't want another resume of a white-looking man around the table. I want diversity." and uh, how what a refreshing notion so um, so I think we will see a lot more change. the status quo is still dismal. what are we at nine to eleven percent are of you know in venture anyway are of partners are women and that's not even managing partners it's just you know being a full g p member of the gp at a decision making level so I think we have some headways to make, but we at Glasswing are quite proud i think um, we have um women and diversity from the board level, our independent directors, to the management teams, to our advisory councils, to our own teams. As you mentioned, we're a majority um, women firm, but we're recently around the Women's International they looked at the statistics. I believe 35% of our um, advisory council members are women. And I believe about 33% of our senior management teams are women, which is several fold higher than um, the industry. And we still want to push that farther. I mean, they range from women like Paula Long, who is the head of tech at um, Tala. TALA, to Julie Johnson, the president at um, Armored Things, and the list goes on. And I mentioned them because the women on our teams are not in what I would call just the typical marketing, we are women type functions, If there is such a thing, which there ought to not be marketing and the likes are actually in president roles and COO roles and CTO roles and CEO roles, cabinet M it's two women co-founders and so on and so forth.
0: Paula, Paula is amazing. You know, I mean, none (laughs) (laughs) such a, and then, you know, just one of the largest, uh, you know, exits,
1: you know, ever. Uh Well, and uh, I think it was the largest all cash exit, um, Ecologic until WhatsApp. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but we, uh, and and again, uh, you think of the Paula Longs, you think of the John Bruces and Rob Mays and whatnot, we're extremely fortunate um on the relationship we have built and hopefully the value we have added but being there to support our founders in terms of the caliber of talent that we've brought um, you know around our portfolio companies and also the repeat uh, you know founders that come back and work with us which hopefully is a testament to our relationship with them and the value they have created and how we support them
0: so what do you like to do outside of work
1: Well, I'm a mom and a wife. So, um, I would say my, my family, um, is a big priority. And with a five and a half year old, there isn't a lot of time left. So we did a recent New York trip, did, you know, the Lion King and frozen. So to, to my whole tech world and cutting edge world, there is also a, you know, frozen and princess world. But I think, um, She's probably my my biggest passion right now and will persist, Um, my daughter and and my husband and my family. And then outside, I think um, I love to read. Um, And honestly, most recently, I've been trying to read, you know, non-tech books, just just a little separation and mostly in um, history and biographies. Um, But... um, there isn't much for Elsa, you know, sports this that, but nothing that I could say I'm particularly avid about. There are only so many hours in the day, and glasswing and being a member of the family are pretty much full time.
0: No doubt, no, you're already stretched thin as it is. <laughs> well, Radina, thanks so much for taking the time for walking us through your background. Obviously, all the exciting things that it's, that's going on at
1: Glasswing. Thank you so much for all your thoughtful questions and for having me on. Always a pleasure.